Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Atlantic Bushcraft Adventures. Tonight, we're on episode 254. And tonight's topic slash question kind of came from work today. And this is what I was just talking with Ben before we came on. Uh, so while I was at work today, somebody, you know, caught wind, seen the bumper sticker on the back of the vehicle there, whatever it was, and knew I was into bushcrafting. And they basically asked me, what is the best kind of snow to build a shelter out of? And this is on the, you know, kind of the heels off this massive snowfall we just had here in Nova Scotia. Um, and if uh, our viewers, listeners and all that from around the globe aren't aware, uh, here in eastern Canada, there's these two big storms kind of came together and we got a massive amount of snow. We had over 100 centimeters of snow in like a three day span. Uh, if you look on our Facebook page, I've been posting pictures up there trying to show people how much we've been getting. And it's the weirdest thing ever because certain parts of the province got hammered with snow like where I'm at. And then you drive like an hour over the hill and Ben knows what I'm talking about when I say over the hill or over the mountain. There's like eight inches of snow. Nothing. You know what I mean? It was so weird how it came through here. So everything north of Mount Tom, basically it slammed with snow and everything south of Mount Tom, I mean, they had a typical snowfall. Uh, but in any case, back to our question. So they were asking what kind of snow is best to build a shelter? And the follow-up question was, uh, how do you know when ice is safe to be out? And this was somebody that was getting new into the outdoorsy thing, and they just wanted some general guidelines for where they're out there and doing their adventuring. So I figured it'd be a good thing to drag on here tonight. You and I can talk about it a little bit, Ben, because this information may be interesting to other people. Maybe not, but that's the joy of this. You know what I mean? We throw everything out there, and people can sort out what they think is good. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So I, I did do some math the other day. It seems like every 10 years, Nova Scotia gets dumped on like that. Is it every 10 years? I was going to say, it's been a long time. The last real so, big one was white one. No, no. Um, big single storm would have been white one in 2004. But then in 2014, there was dump after dump after dump. It was the year I bought my, my kayaks in Nova Scotia. And we had five, six feet of snow that year. And most of it all landed on Wednesdays. And it seemed like... Oh, I remember that. That's the year I snuck down to Florida and left Mel here. Uh, and no, I wasn't down vacationing. I was down working. Um, but and she kept calling me and talking about the storms. I think that's the same year that the big storm went through the upper states there, too. They were shutting down states behind it. I can't remember what it was, but I remember, like, uh, coming down through, like, Michigan, Connecticut, and all that stuff, and the states were literally closing behind us. But I know the year you're talking about, and yeah, you were right. It was like, it wasn't one big storm, like we got it's just... in the last couple days, or White One, but it was just nonstop snow that year. There was tons of it. Yeah. So, so anyways, and uh, yeah. So the question was, what's the best type of snow to build a shelter from? And I think the reality is almost any snow can be used to make a shelter. Uh, so the white stuff, not the yellow stuff, was a joke <laughs> we made earlier. Um, but yes, the type of st structure you would build with that snow would vary um, based on the type of snow. Um, and I think that's an important thing. And uh, you pointed out quite rightly, um, if you picture like an igloo, which we rarely in the, you know, in the south where we are, Nova Scotia, even Newfoundland, and that the snow is rarely quite right for, for igloos. It needs to be much more dry and compact. Yeah. 
Uh, sorry, I was just answering some uh, Matt here in this corner. So for anybody else, and I'm, I'm going to come back to your stuff there, Ben, but just so everybody's on the same page here. Matt's joining us, uh, one of our bro bushcrafting brethren, and um, was just wondering how much snow I ended up getting here. And honestly, there's no way to tell, Matt. I uh, It's over 100 centimeters. That's all I can tell you. Uh, up in Cape Breton, they're claiming it's between 160 and 180 uh and here where i'm at just a little south of cape breton um like i said it's over 100 for sure the backyard's got about eight feet in it just like the not drifted just normal eight feet snow but at the same time i know there wasn't eight feet of snow it's just it blew so much it gathered in large areas and here where i'm at was one of the areas where it kind of gathered into so i don't know man but it's a ton of snow uh yeah so ben there is kind of differences of snow depending on what you're going to build. Like you said, for an igloo, the best stuff you can get is the styrofoamy stuff. And this is what you and I were talking about just before we came on. And everybody calls it styrofoam. And I always hated that description because when you're reading that, how do you clarify snow like styrofoam? So more accurately, I find is, you know, those green blocks you get that come in gardening that you like stick flowers and stuff in how it's kind of like a solid block. But if you were to squeeze it, it would crumble. Yeah, you don't have a clue. You're just humoring me, aren't you, Ben? <laughs> no, no. I mean, if you even if you watch them do it, it's it's snow that you can actually cut and yeah. pick up, like, and it'll it'll maintain its shell shape, and it needs to be firm enough that you can stack it on top of itself. Exactly. And that's exactly how they make it. They they cut. I think there's they're between six and nine inches thick, and you cut cut them, and you just keep leaning them, and they all tilt in, and you have to go kind of all the way around in a in a in a cycle. So the follow-up to this, and I guess to more allude to the question that was asked, was the person was asking if they could use really wet snow, like snowman snow is what they called it, the stuff that you would roll around in balls and stuff like that. And you can use this for building other shelters. Uh, and not saying you can't use it for making an igloo, it's just going to be trickier because that styrofoam snow or whatever you want to call it that we're talking about, you can make a fairly big block out of it. And comparatively to the size, there's still not a ton of weight to it. It's, it's heavy, but there's still a lot of air in that snow. And that's kind of the secret to this. You got to get snow that's dry uh, because the more... <laughs> now we're going to start talking in oxymorons. Dry snow because snow is water. But, but what I is mean dry. is it's fluffy <laughs> snow. You know what I mean? It's like dry, fluffy snow, but it's compactable. Uh, it holds its shape, as you were saying there, too. If you get the snow wet to where it's packable, yeah, you can make all kinds of shape out of it, but there's less air expansion in there. So you're getting a denser snow uh, for the same cubic size. You're getting much heavier snow, which means depending on the size of your eagle and the shelter you're building, that could lead to structural collapse. Now you're going to leave thicker and thicker and thicker snow to maintain the shape. But also, if something goes wrong, that's so much more weight that's potentially coming down on you, right? So you got to weigh that stuff out. If you can get that kind of styrofoamy snow, um, it is really the best stuff because you can get a nice big block out of it. It doesn't weigh a crazy amount. I mean, it's still going to be heavy. It's not like picking up feathers. But it's not heavy like the dense snow if you had to pack it down into the same cube. Not to mention the dense snow, it's also going to uh, turn to ice a lot faster. So any deformation that happens as you're building this thing is going to become very permanent and prominent. Um, so it, it's it's not that you can't use it. It's a, just a whole other ball game to use that stuff. So if you can get the styrofoamy snow, cut your blocks out like Ben said, that is by <laughs> far your best method. Um 
so the idea in an igloo shelter is the inside as you warm it up it's going to turn to ice anyway um but the outside of it's going to retain that fluffiness and we've talked about this in the past before airspace trapped airspace equates to warmth um so if you're compacting down this wet snow again uh as it turns to ice and stuff it just doesn't have the same insulation value it's more of a wind blocking thing still works but it's just you want the styrofoamy snow if you want to build an igloo i'll leave it at that because i'm running in circles yeah no i i think you, you said it pretty good there uh you want the relatively lightweight it, it needs to hold its shape and it's generally it, it'll be a dry snow and by that it's quite clearly when you pick it up basically falls right off your hands it won't stick to anything uh where the sticky snow the snowball snow the snowman snow you pick it up and you put it together and it ain't coming apart very easily but it'll also build up balls on your on your gloves it also like if you have a dog they're going to come in they're going to be covered with snowballs across their body like it sticks to everything and that sticky snow you can make almost anything with it but you have to be kind of aware of its 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 actual properties and I think that's the snow we built our best forts with growing up oftentimes because that was probably the more common snow. So we had dense snow growing up because it would heat up a little bit and, and it would get that stickiness, which was really good for snowmen and stuff. And you built thicker, more st sturdy things. And most times we dug it out, we hollowed that out. Um, so on that note, we can talk about how to design some structures out of snow. Uh, just kind of as a quick blurb over on this stuff. So we talked about making an igloo. The way you make an igloo is you cut out the cubes and you stack it up onto itself. Now what you're getting to there, Ben, is basically you're piling the snow up and then you're hollowing out inside it, right? Or do you have enough already built up? Because most of the ones we built, there was, I mean, we always had a lot of snow. We would find a good drift. They were drifted up and kind of, and we would hollow that out. You had to be careful with that, though, because like you said it can be heavy. You have to, you have to maintain a certain thickness. And the trick we used for that was poles. And this is where I was heading with this. Thank you for taking me down that rope. So explain, Ben. How do you use poles to make a snow shelter? So there's a couple of ways to do it, and and probably the the most easiest one to explain. If, you have a known mound of snow that you want to hollow out. You go cut yourself as many one foot or 18 inch or however thick you want your wall sticks and you push them all the way in, all the way around the material. And then when you dig, you only dig till you hit the wood. The other way is, is from the inside, you poke the pole out and you tell someone to let you know when it pops out and you sort of hold your hand at the thickness you want. And when it pops out, you stop digging. <laughs> so you carve off a bit, you stick it out. Carve off a bit, you stick it out. Or until you, when you pull it back, light comes in on it. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, we're getting to the same end point here. So the way I've done it in the past, not a whole lot different from what you did, is if you were stacking snow up or even if you're working with a drift or something like that, we always shaped the outside of it the way we wanted uh, before we ever started hollowing it out, we shaped the outside to whatever we want our outside of the fort to look like, be it a dome or whatever. That way we just kind of had an even surface going around, whatever. And then much like you said, we just took the poles, 
one foot long, for instance, or 18 inches, 16 inches, whatever the case may be, depending on what we're working with. And honestly, folks, there is no, actually, maybe there is a magic formula about how thick it has to be, depending on the snow you got. Uh, we learned all this through trial and error. When in doubt, leave it thicker. Thicker is one going to add more R value to a degree, but it's also giving you just more material that's going to be stronger on itself. It's not going to collapse in as easy. Um, so anyway, take your one foot poles, shove them all the way around your structure so that the ends are pointing in. And just as Ben said, you hollow it out until you touch the poles. Uh, and then you know that roughly there is a foot or whatever the case has to be on the outside. And with Lily, with all this snow and stuff that's going on, that's how we were out there building snow shelters. And you know what? Now that I think about it, this could be a great short video. <laughs> um. Yeah, and it's a great, if you have, like I said, a mound of snow, and it, if you don't have a mound of snow, there is a, a bit of a trick at how to build a mound of snow. And so it's best done on a bright day, a sunny day, and you take each shovel and you throw it up as high as you can in a pile. And as it goes up and it's in the light, it tends to crystallize a bit more. And when it lands, it kind of forms a better a pack. So both the, sort of the gravity of it hitting plus the fact that it's, momentarily in the air it, the edges of the snowflakes kind of soften a little bit and they bond when they hit the ground again you form a, a little bit better than if you just like piled it all up really quickly um so that was the method we used to use to to build a bounder up to improve a mound uh and that method works really well for um slightly damp stickier snow or good drifts uh for sure the the next type I think we should probably talk about is really fluffy snow. Yeah, and fluffy snow... Actually, before we move on, I'm going to address Matt in the comments here again. We've okay. been having our own private little conversation. It's just easier for me to talk about some of this stuff. And this is kind of blowing my mind as well. So Matt's saying he lives in Illinois. Don't think he gets an inch of snow in total. And all mm -hmm. I can think is, well, I'm snow blowing out there. Like, the path just to my woodshed took me about four and a half hours and i mean we're only talking like 25 30 feet by the time i had that done and i was coming back to go start the driveways it had already snowed like another five inches on top of that i'm getting like an inch an hour realistically is what it was falling there matt like not an inch in total an inch an hour is what we were getting here at one point if not more honestly at one point i just hid inside i'm like nope it's just too much outside this is insanity i'm hunkering down yeah nomad joined us there tonight too how how's it going nomad so yes jumping back into this white fluffy snow does serve a purpose uh and it, it's actually a really good one to build modified shelters out in the woods uh if i'm heading out into the woods and if something happens survival situation i do like seeing white fluffy snow i mean all snow is good because it makes a great building material you know what i mean it's usually abundant here in Canada anyway, like right now, you could build mansions out of snow. <laughs> but realistically, it's a great resource because it's out there and there's usually a ton of it. White fluffy snow, it's easy to work with with very little tools. And this is what I like about it. But it's not going to compact down as easy and as be as malleable as the other snow we've been talking about. So you got to be a little bit more creative with this. You may have to make some sort of structure to support some of that fluffy snow. But that fluffy snow makes a great wind barrier and it adds a ton of thermal value. So even if you make like a quick, 
lean-to style shelter and you don't have enough boughs and stuff there to be able to make a good thermal layering on it you can cover that up and snow really quickly really easily especially if it's light fluffy snow that's where i think this stuff shines yeah and that's actually my thought too is you get you build your lean-to you build your little hut like if you can get some flexible branches and build around things throw if you have a small tarp or even a couple plastic bags it doesn't have to be much to prevent the snow from going inside of that structure and you pile it on you just keep piling the fluff on and snow does a lot of things and one of you said it, it it stops the wind but what it really really excels at is insulating so the heat you build in it goes out and it kind of hits that it doesn't go anywhere so inside of any of these huts if built properly you quickly build up enough heat that you're no longer as cold so it could be minus 14 outside or minus 40 inside you can heat it up to top, probably close to or just above zero with very little energy um after that you start to get melting and you get other issues but yeah a couple of candles inside of a good snow fort uh or hut will produce enough heat that you can especially when you're working go down to your long sleeve shirt or even i've been in them with my t-shirt uh you know it's cool and if you touch the walls it's going to be cold but yeah, with no wind and the trapped air heating up decently well, it makes a really comfortable shelter. Uh, a couple of blankets, maybe some wool blankets and, and a pad to get yourself off the cold ground. And you're, you're not doing too bad. So we are talking snow shelters now. Nomad, I see your comment there. Nomad's getting ready to drive through a snowstorm in Utah. Just be careful out there, friend. As always, we want all our buddies to stay nice and safe out there. So once again, just be careful, man, but have fun. Um, if we're going to be building snow shelters, and while we're on the topic of snow shelters, there's a couple little caveats. I got them on a list here. I wanted to include them. I'm not really sure where to throw them in, so I'm going to throw them in here. If you're building snow shelters, remember ventilation. It's probably a little more important than a lot of the other shelters you're going to be building because snow generally will become airtight fairly quickly uh yes you're gonna have your entrance and stuff like that but you still need some ventiles around the top especially if you're bringing some sort of combustible inside so even if you're running some candles or a little stove or a small fire you need some ventilation going out the top one for air to come in two for carbon dioxide to go out and three when you're dealing with snow it's just so it doesn't get too hot inside as ben was saying if it gets too hot your shelter's gonna melt you know what i mean you don't want water dripping on you at all times you're plan is to get it right around zero degrees so hopefully the material you're wearing whatever you're wearing out there in that environment is good for at least zero degrees you know what i mean uh and it's going to keep you warm and as ben said if it drops down to like minus 40 you make it zero degrees inside it's way easier to stay warm while you're sleeping than it is to try and sleep outside with no kind of shelter and that's all you're trying to get through on this stuff so one remember ventilation two if you have the availability and this one is a long stretch because most times in survival situation, you're not going to get to this kind of level. But if you have the opportunity inside your snow shelter, you should try and get a small platform to where you're going to be sleeping. Try not to be sleeping in the very bottom of it because you are surrounded by a cold material. Cold tends to drop down. The coldest spot that it's going to be inside a snow shelter, at the very bottom. The closer you can get to the top, the more of your own body heat plus the other body, any heat in there is going to keep you warm. Once again, couple that with a little ventilation. Two, the other reason you don't want to sleep down on the bottom is if some does happen to melt, where's all that water going to pool, Ben? 
Right to the bottom. Right to the bottom. Yeah. <laughs> Water has yeah, to flow downhill. You're 100% right. Um, it, these are very important things. If you want, look at any of the bushcraft uh, books and videos, they'll show you that. You build that shelf, you get off the ground. Um, you do not want to try and have a fire. I have had fires in snow, in snow forts. It's not a great idea. You have to have a pretty good vent. I was going uh, to say, you have to build more of a Quincy up style where you have a massive hole in the top and it has to be basically yeah. your fire right under that hole. So it can be done. It's yeah. tricky, folks. It, the, the radiation heat does cause everything to kind of like melt. And then it, if if you're far enough away that it'll freeze, you get a very solid structure inside. You, you don't worry about collapsing so much anymore. But it's 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 a lot of finicky work to, to make it work. Uh and, I, you know, I, I heard someone say, well, at one time, could you bring in, like, the little buddy heaters or could you bring in, like, a, the titanium stoves and run a chimney up? And, it, I mean, those chimneys are super hot. If you put it out a four-inch hole by the time the, the night's over, you're going to have a 12-inch hole. <laughs> and all that water's dripping down on your stove, and it's going to create the humidity up in, in the, uh, that area, and it's not going to be an enjoyable experience. So do keep that in mind in case anyone was thinking along that. But, uh, yeah. No, I was going to say, even look at, like, uh, the Inuit and stuff like that, Northwest Territories, Yukon, uh, Nudavit. A lot of times they're not bringing a full-on fire into their into their igloos and stuff like that. A lot of times it's like the... And I know Boiling. somebody told me the name last episode, and I can't remember what it is. The blubber candles. Yeah. What was it called, Ben? Uh, no, it's just an oil lamp is what yeah. it is. I don't... Yeah. Yes, very much so. They had that, and they cooked on that. But there's a few things. One, further up north you go, the less wood there is to burn. So, so getting enough good firewood up north where that, that kind of snow is. I mean, the best snow is probably, or wood is probably under the snow. You'd have to dig it up to get to half of it. Uh, and it, it wasn't feasible. So keeping those nice insulated huts and having good fur, um Blankets and clothing kept them much warmer, and they and they would line the floors and even pro probably some of the walls with furs if they could. Um, <clears throat> okay, so the name of these lamps, and I know I'm gonna butcher this word, is Quillic, Q U L L I Q, Quillic, Cudlic. Yeah, anyway, yeah. it it's a real thing, folks. And uh, yeah, sorry Ben, that that was annoying me. I had to look up what the name of that was. Yeah, no, it's, you know, uh, it's a good point. And I think getting back to, we used to do use candles, but even the little oil lanterns would work decently well for that. Uh, and I, I think we used to even like, if we used candles, we used to wrap um, aluminum foil in the sconces to reflect the light in and also kind of protect the snow a little bit and, and the candle itself from drip. Uh, and you would see the column of heat from the candle would turn the snow black and it would start slowly tunnel its way out. So you had to take that into account. I think those uh, little ceramic hot heaters would work well terracotta for that. Hot, it takes... Terracotta heater. Yep. Terracotta heater. Uh, and I was going to say, this was the first time I ever seen the terracotta heater was in one of the snow shelters that I had built when I was older. Um, and it worked really well, but we still had some melting issues and things like that. So generally for snow shelters, for me, it's, dress warm enough that zero degrees shouldn't be a problem and then try to shoot for the inside of your snow shelter to be as close to zero degrees as possible because the warmer it gets the faster it's going to melt the colder it is 
I mean, there's no reason. If you can get it a little colder and you can stand a little colder, then you don't have to worry about it uh, melting for sure. But, I mean, you kind of want to be comfortable. And a lot of, you know, the indigenous peoples and stuff that use these igloos, you got to remember, they're sleeping in, like, in the classic igloo, for instance. Uh, a lot of that would have been, like, uh, bear and caribou hide, wouldn't it have been? So, bear, caribou, and seal. Yeah, real... Um, Real dense fur is what I'm getting to. They, they're super warm. Um, but yeah, so we talked about like the styrofoamy snow, which is, of course, if you want to be able to knee glue or anything like that, even a normal shelter, like you can cut and stack this stuff up fairly easily. Uh, and another flip side on this, folks, is if you can dig into the snow, it is, uh, if you dig down or if you're cutting blocks out of this stuff and you build up around it, you're doubling your size for half the effort. Don't cut your block somewhere way away and then build somewhere else if you can get away with potentially building into the hole you're already creating. You know what I mean? Uh, but I mean, several things go into that too. Make sure you're not digging down into a swamp or something. You know what I mean? Got to know the area a little bit. But I mean, cut your work in half. Goes with any kind of snow that you're going to be dealing with here. So yeah, the white and fluffy styrofoamish kind of snow is going to be the better stuff just because it's good to work with. Uh, but you need the ability to be able to cut the blocks out. If you're trying to cut it with your bare hand, well, not your bare hands, but your gloved hands or something like that, you're going to have a difficult time. Uh, you're going to get a lot of jagged shapes. A lot of stuff is going to fall apart. They actually make a kind of saw-ish thing. And it is a saw. It's a snow saw for working with this kind of snow uh specifically so they can cut the blocks out and they're kind of uniformly shaped and easy to build with uh so we talked about the styrofoamy snow we talked about the packy snow or your snowman snow which is what we all played with as kids yes you can do it keep in mind it's going to be heavier it's going to exhaust you quicker but the benefit is you can work with this with your gloved hands and limited tools and shape pretty much anything you want as Ben said, you may have to stack some of that up. Uh, there is a method to the madness there, Ben, which was throw it up, kind of let it come back down. As you said, this helps uh, a recoagulation of the snow and it limits hollow spots. That way you're not digging and all of a sudden there's like, you know, a six inch void that you weren't accounting for. Um, yeah. But yeah, you can work with that stuff. And then two, there's the white fluffy snow, which is great to work with with no tools, but it's not very packy. So you're going to have to build some sort of support. Yeah. Yeah. So there is no perfect snow to work with. The thing is you have to be able to adapt to the snow you're given. And these are just some ideas on what you can do with that stuff. So to dump a little bit away from snow for the moment, the follow-up question that I had at work was how to work with ice. Uh, this person was new to being in the area. They're, they want to experience... Long story short, they want to try smelt fishing. They have seen, as they drove by an area where they were, they could see the the smell shacks out there at one point this year. And they were like, I want to try that, but I don't know when it's safe to go out there. Um, so really quickly, you need... I'm going Four to suggest inches. everybody looks this up. There are specific guidelines you can go with this. Here's the very loose version of it. Clear, solid ice is going to be your strongest ice. You will only need a couple inches of that to keep you up, whereas you may need five to six inches off like the opaque ice, that kind of whitish ice. Uh, think like ice cubes in the freezer that don't make that nice crystal clear kind of look. So what the non-crystal clear stuff is, it's imperfections, be it air 
or minerals or whatever, right? And that's all kind of weakening the structural integrity of the ice. You're going to need even more ice if it's like the candlestick ice or if it's like the stuff that has voids and stuff in it. Generally, you're going to get this around like moving water, things like that. You know what I mean? It's forcing large air gaps and stuff in there. So once again, kind of a loaded question. The, more, the stronger the ice is, the less of it you're going to need. But how do you know if the ice is strong? The clearer so the ice is, the stronger the ice is. The government websites will tell you four inches. Four inches of ice will generally hold up to 800 pounds. Um, five inches, 2,500. Six inches, 1,800. Seven inches, 2,450. So once you get over seven, eight inches, you can pretty well drive a car on it. Yeah. I was going to say, surprisingly, it's not as much ice, it's not as much ice thickness as you would think to walk on it. But there's a lot of other factors that go into that. Uh, you can get some false structural integrity on ice, especially from like a shore on a pond or something, because that ice, as the, the water shallows as it comes to the edge, the ice might actually reach all the way to the bottom of the, like the pond or lake or whatever the case you may be walking out on, which is giving it a little bit more structural integrity in one instance. Or the other side of that is if there's a lot of reedy stuff around, this is making a lot of holes in the ice, which is going to affect the structural integrity again. Uh, but yeah, long story short, as Ben said, you need a couple inches of ice. And it, anytime you see these ice thickness guides, they are based on clear solid ice, not once again, your opaque ice, uh, pack ice, candlestick ice, things like that. We, um, we go over a lot of this stuff in ice rescue courses and I'm not going to pretend or pretend to be a expert on the subject. Um, so I suggest you folks look it up, but the, sh the short answer is as long as it's nice, clear ice, a couple inches, you should be good. When in doubt, don't go on the ice. Don't go. <laughs> I mean, that um, sounds yeah. silly, but it's true. When in doubt, don't go on the ice. I, I, I recommend this too. Go out with a pole. And, and my recommendation is cut yourself a good wooden hiking stick. Cut it probably at least shoulder height. Yep. There's a couple of reasons for this. And I bet you're going to get them all. But before you go out, you get this nice long thing and, and hit the ice in front of you. And if, you, if the stick goes through... You, you don't go that way. <laughs> you don't Anywhere the stick, you, you're able to push the stick through. Because um, what you have is, is something that's about an inch square. And when you hit down with your strength, you're probably hitting at about 200 um, PSI or more, which is about the breaking strength of a man walking across ice. So that keeps you pretty secure. That being said, if you do fall while holding a stick like that, the good chance is that length, will probably be wider than the hole you fall through, and you'll be able to use that to help get yourself back out. So you'll be able to use that to leverage yourself out. Uh, if you do fall through the ice, do not try to stand back up. Lay down and crawl out like a seal. Yep. Uh, take your now wet hands, and you can even let them freeze to the ground a bit to help drag you ahead if you got to get that traction. Keys um, in your pocket work good. They actually make things called quick picks. Uh, and yep. If you are going to be an avid ice walker. I don't know how else to define that. They're like 30 bucks. Get a set. Those things could save your life. But in a pinch, uh, a lighter, uh, keys, a multi-tool, anything you can do to get into the ice. Uh, and like Ben said, basically hand straight out, 
legs back, kick, and as you get on the ice, roll, roll away from the hole. Don't try to stand right back up and walk away. Number one thing people do is like, oh, I'm out of the hole, now they stand back up, bam, they're right back down and do another hole. Basically roll a good distance away in the direction you came because you know that ice is fairly supportive. Once you get a ways away, you can go to hands and knees and crawl. And then when you are on the ice that you are 100%, 110% guaranteed it's not going to break thin, you can try and walk again. Uh, worst case, you may have to roll or crawl all the way back to shore if you were one of those foolish people that decided to take their chances and go out on ice that was cracking right from the get-go. And, and here's something else. If you're out there with a dog or a kid or a buddy you don't like that much and they fall through, um, don't go help them. Um, stay back. If you can get a rope or tie some clothing together and toss out and, and get them to grab. But as, as they're struggling and flailing around, they're going to make the ice around them weak anyways. And it's just liable now you have two of you in there. And once you get that person out, if you're there with them, it is now going to be, whether you want it to be or not, your responsibility to help get them warm. And so try not to bleed off your good body heat before you absolutely need to, because you may need your body heat to help heat them up. And you also need your dexterity and strength to probably get a fire going or get them into a shelter or a warm vehicle or whatever you can. Um, take advantage of whatever heat you can get that's reasonable and uh, do be careful not to overheat somebody who's frozen because um, you can easily cause damage that way. Um, so you heat them up as, as quick as you can reasonably, but never using temperature much higher than body temperature. And just the follow-up to that is if you are able to heat the core up faster than the arms and legs, you're going to be much better off because you get this thing called afterdrop, which basically the body goes into this survival mode. And as your extremities and stuff cool off, it says, hey, these parts don't need blood as actively as my heart, my lungs, my brain. So they're going to pull all that body in. They're going to shut down the capillaries and stuff in your hands. And that's why the dexterity kind of goes. Um, and then if you were to warm those up aggressively for whatever reason, the brain goes, oh, hey, those extremities are warm again. I'm going to start circulating blood out there. So the blood rushes out to them. They're still relatively cold compared to the core. It pulls all that cold blood back into the core. And now all the core temperature drops again. Uh, and that's what this whole after, after drop thing is. So the best thing you can do is Ben said, get them out of the wet stuff. Try and warm them up gently from the outside. Try and give warm liquids to warm them up from the inside. And I'm not talking like a hot cup of tea because these people may be so cold that eh, you may have just burnt them. Like we're talking warm, like you would give it to your three-year-old kind of deal. You know what I mean? Uh, in a severe case, if somebody is really, really, really cold and you're worried they're going into hyperthermia, it may be best for medical professionals to warm them up appropriately. Like obviously try to stabilize them. But once uh, medical professionals get there, they have specialized ways of warming these people up appropriately to do the least amount of tissue damage and to try and stop that uh, afterdrop or aftershock. Uh, we're talking about cold water here, and I think we've mentioned this in past episodes too, but just to remind everybody, uh, cold water boot camp, you can find that on online somewhere. I can't remember. I think it was a free course once upon a time. Uh, but cold water boot camp, they give you this 110-1 rule. Uh, for cold water, cold water is anything less than four degrees. 
if you fall into it, you've got one minute to catch your breath because generally when we fall into something cold, if anybody's ever splashed you with cold water, you know you get that sharp <gasps> inhale. You know what I mean? You've got one minute to control your breathing or you'll start to hyperventilate. So if you're going down, prepare for it. I know you only get a couple seconds, split second decision, but try to prepare for it. Try not to do that sharp inhale and draw a whole bunch of cold water inside you because it's cooling you down. If you can get control of your breathing within one minute, that means you have 10 minutes of useful dexterous movement with your fingers. And I'm not talking like, you know, plucking the strings on a piano. Basically, when you tell your fingers to open and close, they're going to continue to open and close. After that 10 minutes, you've got about one hour before you'll lose consciousness. And this is dependent on a lot of things. This is not written in stone. This is a general rule of thumb. Uh, so yeah, if you can remember the 1101, that'll help you out a bit. Ideally, don't hang out in the water for an hour and be like, oh, you know, I got 15 more minutes for I'm going to start passing out. Get out. <laughs> you know what I mean? These are in but extreme situations. The difference between survival and camping, one's necessity, one is fun. <laughs> one, one thing to keep in mind, though, is as you get out, if the air temperature is really cold, the air is going to be much, much colder in the water most times. And at that point, it's going to start evaporating that liquid off your body. And so you want to get out of that wet clothing as soon as possible and as dry as possible. Uh, and that's going to be uncomfortable. That is not something you're going to enjoy. Um, so if you can get out of that wet clothes, get out of that wet clothes. And, you know, modesty is no longer a thing at this point. Like, don't worry about that. Uh, and then try to get covered in something dry. So it may, you may have to, like, bystanders or, or friends or whoever's around you maybe they can give you a jacket their pants something else so you can get get your heat up if you get a big sleeping bag better get in there if somebody can get in there with you and you can share that heat that helps a lot um, and that's something you're not going to cook so you're not going to harm somebody with your own body heat generally unless it's extremely dire and at that point there probably isn't a lot you're going to be able to do anyways and and that damage may be done. But yeah, those are some things to keep in mind with that stuff. Um, you know, people have fallen in pretty cold water by themselves and survived. Yep. Uh, I can speak, I can but, attest to this. I have done it. It's not fun, folks. Uh, but you'll be surprised what you can live through, in all honesty. Yeah. But, you know, it, it takes some dedication and some planning. Um, and, and you have to do the things you need to do as quickly as possible. So, you may get out and think, oh, my, this is too much. I just can't do it. You don't have time to think about that. <laughs> you have to be acting now. And then you can you can have your mental breakdown and your stress later. That's okay. And at that point, it's perfectly okay to have those things. And you made a good point there about uh, the mental stress and stuff like that. Keep in mind, as body temperature drops, cognitive abilities tend to go with it. So what I tend to tell people is make short-term achievable goals okay you've fallen through the water what's my don't start thinking oh my god this is where i'm going to freeze to death what's your first immediate goal get control of your breathing what's your next attainable goal okay can i get out of this don't flail around take a second you're in the water anyway take a good second or two plan how you're going to get out don't just start pushing up on your hands and stuff like that remember what ben and rob told you Hands out, spread your weight out as much as you can, kick your legs like a demon. Get up as much as you can, roll away. Keep your body spread out. 
That's your next achievable goal. Next one, get to shore. That doesn't mean bounce up on your feet and run. Try to keep your wits about you. How are you going to get there? How dangerous was this ice? Once you get to shore, okay. Now I got to get dry. Does that mean I got to take off my wet clothes? What has to be done? What's the situation you're in? Maybe you're in the middle of the woods with nothing. Like, Start planning short, achievable goals. It'll keep your brain thinking, but it gives you realistic expectations as well as kind of that dopamine fix when you achieve a goal you set out with and in a situation like this especially if it's dire life and you know wife situation that could be enough to keep you going it's surprising there's been studies done on you know achieving goals and how that keeps you motivated um the study i'm thinking of was done with rats and oh. it's a terrible study uh it's an older study where they threw them in the barrel and let them drown and uh they picked one Save them last them, second yeah basically ones that they gave no hope of ever surviving it was a very short amount of time until they drowned and then they ran some of these rats until they almost drowned and then gave them a way out till they recovered and then threw them back in which is cruel as hell but anyway this is how science was done back in the day and anyway these rats tend to live like five to ten times longer if i'm not mistaken like tread water for so that long it was, it was an astronomical had, amount most of them if they if they fell in and were swimming after about 10 minutes they gave up and died but if they got saved before they died most of them were surviving well over an hour um so six to six plus times their the time because they kept thinking they were going to get saved again yeah so so i mean mental state has a lot to do with what you folks can do out there so make short-term achievable goals and you get that dopamine fix you get that oh i'm accomplishing something fix you know what i mean it builds hope that's what the whole study was about it was about hope yeah anyway so, real uh, interesting study cruel but interesting yeah um yeah all these things are important um but yeah you know you get out there uh, something we said years ago and i think it's important you build a shelter out of the material that you have the most of right so if you're in the winter and there's a lot of snow it makes good sense to make shelter from that it's you can you can do it um for sure but yeah i yeah. think the last thing we want to talk about and this this is just to get your thoughts going and this happened to me on a trip I did with a couple of bushcrafters, we went in them on a Friday or a Saturday and it snowed while we were out there. And we ended up with about a foot of snow while we were in the woods, which seems, it was great. You know, we were wonderful. We had a, a great time. I think we spent two nights out there, um, but it meant that the roads were more or less now had a foot of snow and we were way back woods roads. And so what do you do if you get back there and the snow comes down and prevents you from getting home as you had planned. Maybe your vehicle gets stuck. Maybe you can't see your trail that you took in. Uh, maybe the trail is no longer as passable because of the snow It's made it dangerous. What do you do? And, and, I'm, and I'm leaving that to you, Rob. What do you do? Oh, sorry. I'm gonna be honest, Ben. I was answering something in the comments again. Okay, so snow comes down, you're over a foot. What do you do? Yeah. I mean, Hopefully, before you went out, 
Once again, we're going to play the safety advocate here. Should have checked the weather before you went out. But let's say you got out there and something happened. You're stuck now. So, so it called for three centimeters and you weren't worried about it or three inches. And you said, ah, oh, that's nothing. I can easily drive or walk out of that. But then it landed. You got your 12. You got your 14. You got more. Like like happened to you guys this weekend. This yeah, was not planned. Yeah, the, we were not planning for this kind of, like, most of us were downplaying it, to be honest with you. Being like, ah, oh, whatever, it'll be fine. And then it turned into a real cluster up. But, yeah, so you get out there and you're stuck, per se. I mean... Anytime you're surviving or camping or anything, I say surviving, but actually camping, because you were going out there with the intent of staying in the woods. You're not surviving. You're going out to camp. Surviving yeah. means you had no choice. It turned into surviving in this situation. Hopefully, when you're dealing in a dangerous situation, like for me, even if it was only supposed to snow three centimeters, the last time Mel and I went to the camp, uh, it was supposed to snow. No, not the last time, time before. But anyway... It was supposed to snow a tiny amount. And I said, if something happens and this becomes to the point where we can't take the truck out, we should take a few extra provisions in case we got to get held over. Hopefully people would have the, uh, the insight or, you know, to be able to do that. If for some reason you didn't, it may be time to hunker down. And does that mean beef up the shelter you're in? Or look for a more permanent solution, depending on what you were doing. Because I think in your guys' situation, some of you had like the pop-up, or at least somebody brought a pop-up smelt, smelt shelter or ice shack yep. or something like that, and it collapsed we under had the ways of snow. Ice fishing shelter that that collapsed in this in this environment. Um, our TP tents all survived. Uh, we had we had hot tents with stoves. We had extra food. Um, we were we were pretty good, and fortunately, we had vehicles that were capable of driving it. And we did, but it always came to my mind because this is the type of thing that could happen. What do you do? And there's a few things, and one of the things you didn't say, but I thought you were going to say, is you've let someone know where you're to before you left. Well, this is where so, I was going with it after everything was. I was going to say, hopefully, yeah. with the extra supplies and stuff, when you don't come home on time. If you've put that safety net into place, which we advocate all the time, folks, safety number one, let people know where you're going to be too and when you're going to be back. If you don't come back on time, questions are going to be raised. Red flags are going to go off. People are going to try and check in with you. When they realize they can't get a hold of you, they're going to start sending search parties. Uh, ben, you're, you're a search and rescue guy. What is the average time for somebody to start being looked for? Uh, it really varies. It, it depends on, so we don't, there's no 24 hour rule. As soon as somebody is identified as missing, uh, you could potentially get a call out. So you would contact in most parts of Canada, the RCMP or the local police station and say, my friend, my husband, my brother, my whatever was supposed to be back. They're not, I can't get hold of them. This is where they're supposed to be. And they should send someone to check on you. If they get in the area and your vehicle's there and there's no sign of you, then most likely now they're going to say, well, we think this is a search and they're going to call. Um, if you have a way of contacting people, uh, I have the satellite uh, item, which I didn't have for years, but I have it now. Most cell phones are pretty good, but if you have a way of reaching out, it could be a radio. Use that to let people know where you're to and your status. That'll help. But if you don't have that, Make sure that you mark the area you're to and more or less stay still uh, until you're you're confident you're going to be able to get out. So 
I've always recommended carrying some of the flagging tape. Take a walk, you know, probably no further than the, so you don't lose sight of your shelter and, and your, but as far as out as you can without losing yourself and mark a big parameter. So say you go out a hundred feet and you put out markings at a hundred feet radius, that's 200 foot wide radius now that people walking in the woods are more likely to hit. Where before you were probably contained and within 30 feet, you're now 200 feet wide. And that's, that's much easier to find a 200 foot, foot wide circle than it is a hundred foot or even a 30 foot circle. It's, if, if you spend time in the woods, you're gonna hit that parameter a lot easier. Um, yeah, like you said, if you need to beef up your shelter, make sure you have good supply of at least water. You can survive a long time without food, but not so long without water and shelter. So what is it? The rule of threes, three hours, three hours. Three hours. I came out with three hours, three minutes without air, three hours, probably without shelter. I was going to say, I uh, think it's three hours without shelter when exposed to the elements, three days yeah. without water, three weeks without food. So some of us longer, some of us can go a lot longer. <laughs> Bet you I go four weeks, if not longer. <laughs> but but no, it's very much true, right? Like you you need to take into account that. So don't worry, you're going to starve to death. I mean, you'll probably be uncomfortable, but not starving uh, for There's quite a, a while. There's a big difference between hunger pains and actual starvation. Yeah. Um, but yeah, getting a good supply of, of safe drinkable water would be a really big thing. Um but yeah, and then when you can get out, get out safely. But yeah, if you've done all these things, you're probably going to be fine. Always have a bit of a backup plan. So, you know, make a plan of where you're going and how you would get out if things go bad. And at least you'll have that there, right? No, 100%. So, I mean, that's all I really want to talk about on this subject tonight. Like, Often, I expected to go shorter. We ran longer. But I think we had a lot of good information on this. Matt, actually, from the uh, comments here, seeing great tips. I always learn something from you guys. And, of course, I just posted back. Glad to hear that our ramblings at least have some insight. <laughs> Which is always the thing. Like, we do kind of shoot around. We shoot our shots. But I'm glad that you folks out there do pick out these little tidbits of information. Because I do know our ramblings, Ben, have golden nuggets of information buried in them. Sometimes it just takes us a while to get them out. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But yeah, no, I'm glad. I hope you guys all found something out of this that was interesting or useful. Um, it is good to get out there. It is good to have fun. Weather can go bad. It is something to consider. A lot of us look for this weather. We head for this weather. When, when the snow is high and there's certain, you know, uh, meteorological events going on us and snowstorms and stuff. Some of us seek that, but those that do always have plans. We haven't, and we're confident we'll have a way out. That being said, things go wrong. You know, vehicles break, trails get lost. You know, you could slip and hurt yourself and be stuck for a few extra days. So always plan ahead and always make sure someone knows where you're to and that someone loves you enough to actually send someone looking for you. <laughs> All right, folks, that's been another episode. Thanks for everybody that joined us. We had Nomad Matt in the comments. It says there's five people on here, so there's a couple people tucked away not saying anything. Thank you, folks, for joining us, too. We'll see you next week, same time. Get out there, get dirty, play safe, let us know about it, folks. Later.